new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Wonderful day to podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you for all who are listening. Really appreciate that. And yeah, let's get right into it. On today's podcast, we have with us Holly Trular, and she is a grief therapist, community organizer, and lawyer. In her search for what's just and holy, she earned a doctorate in law and master's in transpersonal counseling psychology. Yet she found more soul, more of what mattered in witnessing grief and spending time with animal kin. Now she integrates her training and experience to create just-based transformative relationships between people, groups, and the more-than-human world. She's currently practicing and researching social technologies such as ritual, deep democracy work, and interspecies communication that foster collective nervous system regulation. She's been called to help hold grief in these troubled and transitional times, so she's lived with her heartbroken, open, and soul on display. Holly, welcome to the podcast. Hey there. Thanks for having me. I really enjoy the work you do, so thanks for doing this. We appreciate any kind of support that we get. And I love when people do take a look at sort of what we do. And I remember we even talked prior to this and you just, you're saying how important it is. And you just wish you had some of that information ahead of time, even to work with some of the clients you work with. And so, you know, for me to hear that, it validates sort of where I'm going and what I'm trying to do and sort of my whole journey after my dad died. So it's just nice to sort of get that feedback from someone that's actually, you know, working in the field and hearing these stories over and over again. Yeah, I can't tell you how many of my clients bring up grief dreams. I don't know that that's what I would have called them, but it's a great term. And how meaningful they can be, confusing they can be, all of those things. And so uh, this is just really interesting to me. Thanks for doing this. So it's interesting when you you know uh, read the bio, it says you uh, really looked for what's just and holy, and then you went and got some education. <laughs> and so <laughs> I don't know if that's the way everyone goes, <laughs> but that's the way you went. And so before we get there, th- is that something you always wanted to do was continue your education? I don't know if it was something I always wanted to do. I would say that growing up in a white middle class family, it was kind of expected. Uh, both my parents are attorneys. And so there was definitely a lot of talk of higher education. Um, And I I do enjoy it. So I definitely didn't think that I would get a degree in transpersonal counseling psychology at a Buddhist university when I was, I guess I didn't even know that existed, to to be honest. So some of it's surprising and some of it's not. And so why were you looking for something like, why did you even think about just and holiness? Like, what happened in your life that made you question that so soon? Because it seems like that was a part of maybe why you're trying to obtain some of those degrees. I think it's a really good question. In some ways, it was never purposeful, or I wouldn't have put it that way a decade ago. But obviously, having parents who are attorneys, and also I think just my personality is such that injustice just doesn't feel good in my body. And I have a a really attuned sense of right use of power and oppression and dominance. And so I think that's always kind of been there, feeling into what's right and what's going wrong in the world. And then as far as what's holy, I'm I'm I say that pretty generally like what's sacred, what's meaningful. 
And in my life, I've had a lot of different experiences, including the deaths of two siblings, including a pretty significant accident that really brought me to my knees and made me think about like what matters to me. And so I think in a lot of ways, what I've been trying to do is weave those two things together. Like, how do we do this well? How do we live with as much meaning as possible? And I'm obviously still on that journey as I think most of us are. That's beautifully said. And you're right. Like I am too. I'm just trying to figure out how to find meaning and make meaning from a lot of, a lot of rough times and a lot of challenges that take us in the weird directions. And yours was, your first loss you're mentioning was when you were a child, I think you're 10 years old and what that can do to your own identity and just facing death so soon. And can you take us through what that was like for you and, and who died? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. So when I was 10, my brother Brett, who was 22 at the time, died of a heroin overdose and it was very unexpected. Uh, we got a call. We were driving to the grocery store. My mom had like one of those car phones that's like connected to the car and is very large, if that makes it like, oh, yeah. And, and yeah, like, and, you know, picked it up and everything changed. After that moment, we drove to Boulder. We were in Denver, so about an hour away. And after that, my whole life changed. He died. Um, and this was somebody I was really close to Brett and he was someone too who people really enjoyed. Uh, he was a musician and like really truly got along with a lot of different people. He was very gregarious, I suppose is a way to put it. And just fun, like fun person, fun as an older brother. And so obviously there was a lot of grief and missing for me. And what I realize now and 38 now, so like 28 years later, is that my whole, you know, my my family fell apart in a lot of ways. I mean, my parents were doing the best they could, but they were obviously incredibly bereaved. And the other pieces, I've realized how much it does change someone to lose someone close at that age, because there's not very many other people, peers, who have lost somebody in their immediate family. At least for me, I for years, I was the only person I knew that had lost a sibling or, or, you know, a parent or anything within that realm. And so there's very much a feeling, or for me, there was a feeling of being an outsider. There was a feeling of like everything having changed or kind of being wrong. But as I think a lot of grievers describe, like the world keeps going, people have no idea how to talk about that. And so it's certainly impacted the way I was in the world. And I think even now I'm realizing the ways that it's shaped me in both really hard ways and also in some beautiful ways. And so what was that like in the sense of what kind of supports were around? Because 20 some years ago, like that wasn't really a topic. A lot of people I know were still pushing children's grief away. And so what did you have or what did you experience in that time I know you're saying the difficulties of not having peers that understood you, but was there any other kind of supports around? So in some ways, yes. And in other ways, no. I would say, well, for one thing, 
it's helpful to me for some reason to put this uh, in a larger perspective to a degree. I would say that my brother's death, Brett's death was really at the beginning of the opiate epidemic, which at the time didn't couldn't have known that as a 10 year old, but also I don't think any of us really knew that. And I guess that's helpful just to say that it's not just grief and the death at that point, but it's also the nature at which he died and lack of understanding around that. And I think for some people, not so much for me, but there's even shame around that, or it feels a bit like hush hush around someone dying of a heroin overdose. So there was that aspect to it, but overall support wise, in some ways, you know, I, I know my parents tried to be there for me. My, my dad actually took a six month sabbatical off of work, which I think is actually kind of rare my mom continued to work and my sister Ivy and I like I I kind of remember not going to school a whole lot like my parents were sort of like yeah you can take as many mental health days as you want and but there was also so that was that was really supportive in some ways but they also weren't able to completely be there if that makes of course like I have a lot of understanding for that and you know like I remember things like when my sister Ivy did go back to school a couple weeks later, she didn't have her homework done and her teacher kicked her out of the class and made her sit in the hallway, even though the teacher knew what had happened. I remember my fifth grade teacher, I was in fifth grade at the time, giving me like a C, like a bad mark because I like hadn't kept up with the reading. And I actually remember my parents sort of being like, yeah, we don't care. Like, how dare you a little bit, which was supportive. But overall, I would say, uh, just as I think is similar to today, there really wasn't a whole lot of conversations about it that felt really deep. I did have a school counselor once I went into middle school that was really actually phenomenal and created a little death group. It was like for all the kids who had lost either a parent or a sibling. I think there was like five of us or something. Um, And that was really helpful. So, but in a lot of ways, I feel like it didn't, wasn't as understood or support as, a, as it could have been. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, and I can sympathize with you in terms of it uh, not being really talked about much. And, and also, like you said earlier, a lot of people your age, a lot of kids your age at that time, they didn't have, they didn't experience what you experienced. And that's another interesting thing that happens a lot. And especially in that type of situation, when you're in, in school at that age, it's like a pressure cooker almost socially. So everything gets kind of labeled and, and oh, that's that's the kid with the divorced parents. And that's the kid who's poor. And that's the kid who's rich. And that's the kid whose brother died. And then, then you get lumped into a group, unfortunately. And it, it, it can affect children. And, and it can be very tough. And I also sympathize in, with your parents. You know, they probably uh, obviously love you a lot and, and had good feelings and all that. But some people just don't have the tools. And it, it's just it's difficult being a parent and trying to navigate through all that, having to work through your grief uh, individually and then having to support your your children and trying to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting, too, for just for me, because I like at that time in school, I'm not sure if you're like this, too, but I really valued my teacher's comments and like the the praise i got for good grades that's like what i clung to for like approval and so if, if i would have got a c i would have been devastated 
also like again on something else and i don't know if was that the same for you in the sense of like getting those grade or getting that c like did it impact you or were you just like were you okay with that at that time because your parents were fine with it i think both like Mm. there was this part of me that was i don't know the right word ashamed or something but there was this other part of me that knew that was wrong like why would you hold somebody who is deeply grieving to the same standard as before on something that really doesn't matter, right? Like the the science grade you get in fifth grade doesn't matter all that much. And so it was a little bit of both for me, I think. Yeah. It would have been nice if they like extended the assignment or said, Hey, you know, uh, why don't you take another, yeah. Why don't you take another two weeks or three weeks to work on this or, or I'll help you after school and we can get this C to a, a or something but yeah you know and that's that's a un, that's a very unfortunate thing in school at society at large is you experience this i've, I've been at workplaces that don't you know acknowledge uh, the death of one of the, their employees uh, relatives or something and it's just uh it's a sad one i know just like because i've taught some university courses and you know this is older people but one of the the things you see in universities is very similar someone has a loss they they're grieving, they can't do the assignment or test. And there's some professors that will hold them the same standard and won't give them, maybe give them a day extension, may not even give them an extension. And there's other people like me, I just weighed the grade differently and said, you don't have to do the assignment. Just like, let's, like I try to work with them to at least finish something and we'll see how they're doing. And then just weight assignments accordingly. But yeah, it's just, you know, I think it's based on personal preference a lot of times from the, the teachers. Um, which is, you know, which is sad because those people who have lost someone usually or have that heart to understand, they uh, they can work with them. But people who have a more closed heart, they won't. And so it really looks at when I look at sort of your story, it's like one of the first things when you you start seeing like an unjust world. And as you sort of move forward, I'm guessing you have other moments of that. I know one one you told on your website is about a, a car car um, running you over so could we talk about sort of i know you probably have other moments but can you talk about also that moment and how that brought up feelings of unjustness yeah absolutely one thing i want to say about what you just said is yeah i think the understanding around grief is so limited too because as we know grief impacts people's like mental capabilities it impacts your ability to track things It, it impacts you physically and so There's all these ramifications that are, you know, beyond someone actually wanting to or not do an assignment or something. And I just wish there was more understanding around that in general. So, yeah, when I was in college, so I was actually going to graduate in a semester early. So I was six weeks away from graduating and I was run over by a drunk driver who the part of the story is not just that, which that alone Um, I had a traumatic brain injury. I had 200 stitches in my head. I had a broken pelvis and a crushed knee. It took me, I did two years of physical therapy and a year and a half of speech therapy to, to recover from that physically. But then part of the story is that a lot of the men on the scene, a lot of them were fraternity men, hid the drunk driver out in a fraternity annex, wouldn't talk to police. They lied to the EMTs and told them that I had fallen. And yeah, and just 
you know, some to this day, I don't think have really taken accountability at all. The, the man did end up turning himself in. He was convicted of a felony and did some things for that. But there was very much this feeling of, you know, it wasn't right and not being heard. And, you know, people, quite frankly, trying to cover it up and saying all kinds of things about it that absolutely added to the feeling of injustice and also just the feeling of belonging or not belonging, right? And and feeling safe or being able to trust people. And so that was absolutely a part of it. I will also say an interesting piece here that I've learned since then is that often younger siblings who've had a sibling die, when they get to the age of the death of their sibling, which I was 21, I was about to turn 22 in a few weeks. My brother died when he was 22. Often when we get to that age, we will go through some kind of threshold or initiatory experience, some type of death experience. Almost our psyches um, saying like, why do I deserve to be here at this age when my sibling didn't make it past this age or to this age? And I had never thought of that or heard of that until I did a training with Joanne Cacciatore, who works with the Miss Foundation and does a bunch of grief work. And she, you know, talked about it. And I was like, that happened to me. Like, that is exactly what happened to me. And there were actually some really there were some similarities as far as like time of the year when my accident happened and when he died and even like the call that my parents got when he died. And then when I was in the, when they got from the emergency room, just some similarities that make it pretty clear that there was some element of that happening in the universe, in my psyche, whatever we want to call it. So I also just find that really interesting. And I like to mention it because it would have been helpful for me to know when I was around that age uh, just to maybe prepare or, you know, even get support around. Uh, yeah. That's so interesting. I've heard of that when like, with the, not siblings per se, but some people who have lost maybe an adult or a parent, sorry. And they got to that age and there's this feeling, it's like this trigger and there's a lot of stuff that comes to the surface and you're right. Like I can understand that perfectly because it, you've reached this milestone where they were and I can't I can only imagine how difficult that would be and what comes up like I'm not there yet my dad died he was 52 so I have a long ways to go before I get there but I can imagine when I get there there will be this like introspection reflection on you know what does that mean to me as I sort of grow older than that if I even get there who knows right like I'm still (laughs) anything can happen from here to there but yeah, I think that's something that people don't normally talk about. And so I'm glad you brought that up. That's very interesting. And I also have heard that before. I'm sure you've heard it on the podcast, actually. Like, you know, situations where someone's like, well, you know, my mom died at 58. And I don't expect, and people will literally say, I don't expect to live past this age. And I've heard that uh, before. I don't know. Seems like it could be even something hereditary and genetic in us to, to look at the people around us and our family. And, and compare ages to kind of gauge how old we might be when we die. Like, for example, like I'll look at my grandparents and be like, oh, yeah, well, one grandparent died, I think, when it was early 70s. And the other one, uh, 
the other one, uh, the other grandfather died at 90 and then my grandmother died around 85 and then my other grandmother died in her 80s. So I'm like, all right, well, maybe I'll live to like, you know, but it's, it's odd that whole vibe, but I, I you know, obviously I can't narrow it down to what causes it, but I, I, there's probably a, a bunch of factors. Part of what we could be talking about is like epigenetics or ancestral grief, right? That could be a piece of it. I can also say for me, it's a bit mind-blowing or heart-blowing, I don't know the right word, to think that I will be older than two of my older siblings, if that makes sense. Like it's it's a bit hard for me to process that even to this day so there's definitely just this element of yeah like what what does what does that mean i think one of you said that so yeah and and probably you're feeling like i get to do things and experience portions of life that they didn't get to experience yeah absolutely so the other sort of large grief that i've experienced that we haven't touched on is the death of my sister ivy who died a year and a half to two years ago. And she was 39. I was 36. And I would say there's a large element of regret in my grief story around her death. Not that I caused it, but just ways I felt I could have done better. And I know this is something that happens in a lot of people's grief processes. Um, But I would say a little bit with Brett's death and then quite a bit with Ivy's death and and in my grief process, that regret has flavored it quite a bit. So when you're saying like, oh, I'm I'm having these experiences that she didn't get to do, it's definitely partially that and some other things as well. And so we haven't really talked, we said we haven't talked about Ivy. So how was your relationship with her and how did that maybe change after the death of your brother? Like did you guys become closer? Like, how, like, did that change anything? Yeah, what a good question. Both, like in some ways, and I realize now how much we held that experience and story together jointly. She had a really good memory. So there were things she remembered that I didn't remember until she would tell the story. But so in some ways, I think it did you know, we had this joint experience that not very many other people had, um, especially at that age, and certainly specific to him. And in other ways, you know, my family struggled and kind of fell apart. And I think that it had a huge impact on our ability to relate with the world and each other. And just being siblings, right? Like sometimes we were really close and I would say overall we were close in that we really knew each other. And sometimes we were angry at each other or weren't in as close of a relationship. And so all those different things really played a role in that. But I can say that Brett's death absolutely shaped both of us and yeah, our relationship quite a bit. It is interesting because when you talk about memories, you're right. Like when, especially when there's only a certain amount of people that knew your your loved one. And then when those people start to die, there's almost this extra form of loss that goes back to the original loss, would be Brett, of people who knew him, people who could remind you of stories in which you have a hard time recalling and what that is. So it's not like, Ivy died, but also another piece of Brett died at the same time. And 
dealing with both those both of those losses at the same time. And so when you could you talk about maybe her death and and also some of your experiences as you went through it and if it changed anything or was it still as difficult when you were a child? Mm. Yeah, her death was different in some ways and and similar, but the difference is, is she was chronically ill for, for many years, probably 15 years. Actually, I remember the first time she got really sick, she had Crohn's disease and some other things. I was a senior in high school and she was in college and we were on a family trip and she was joining us. She flew in from somewhere else and she showed up and she had lost a ton of weight, like not not necessarily healthy. And she said to me, like, I think I'm going to die. And so I was like 18 at that point. And I just remember being shocked and like, this cannot happen. And like desperately talking to my parents about it and all these things and just feeling like, what do we do? And they're so for the, you know, 15 or more years after that, she had some periods where she was healthier. Um, and then it, over the last certainly 10 years, it got worse and worse. And like it, I just, it's different because in some ways I had time to process and accept it. Like I remember being in my late twenties and at some point being like, and for a long time I was like, she has to get better. Let's try this. Let's try that. And then I had this moment where I was like, oh, she's not getting better. This is only going to get worse. And you know, so in some ways there was more preparation. And when she actually died, it was somewhat surprising. Like I had seen her 10 days before it was her birthday. She was doing okay. So that there was still an element of surprise there, uh, but not as surprising. And the other thing I'll say is that grief of being with somebody who's sick for that long, especially in a culture that doesn't know what to do with that tries to fix things, can't really hold grief. Like I can't tell you how many people would tell her or me all these different things to try to fix it as if she was incredibly smart and she did all this research around medical stuff. And, you know, my family would help her as much as we could. And so like really unhelpful. I just, I guess I just want to say, don't do that to people. If somebody, unless you're like a doctor on the cutting edge of whatever's wrong with this person, please don't just give a bunch of, you know, advice. And so that the one of the similar experiences is there weren't there was nobody else in my life certainly from 26 to 36, 10, you know, the 10 years before she died who was going through something like this to this degree of just watching someone you love, you know, lose abilities and um you know, she lived with a disability, she lived with a chronic illness and watching that and like I have I have and had friends that were supportive but there's no way to really describe it and quite frankly a lot of my relationships were either strengthened or ended because somebody couldn't hold what was happening with her and then how it impacted me Wow. Yeah. It seems like you, you kind of, you're thrust into growing up a little bit sooner, dealing with some things and also realizing some truths of, in life, right? That like, you know, some people, some friends will disappear 
when you need them the most. Uh, what's interesting, I thought, was that Ivy had the same feelings that she's going to die, yeah, probably what in around 22 of mm-hmm. when Brett would have died, which is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting how trauma can sort of linger in the field, is how I might put it. And I feel like sometimes if it's not metabolized, however we want to say this, it will find a place to try to be metabolized. And the other thing I would say is that all trauma contains grief. So not all grief contains trauma, but all trauma contains grief. And so considering the world that we're in, which, you know, there's a lot of trauma in our world right now for all kinds of reasons, we can also say there's also a ton of grief, right, that's arising for all different reasons, including the pandemic, including injustice, including just being human and and life and death. It's so true. And I'm curious now, because before when you're 10, did you have any companion animals when you were 10 that I know you have some now, but I'm curious when you're 10, did you have any kind of animals around you? Yeah. I mean, my family, we had animals growing up. Like we always had two dogs. We, I, This is kind of, uh, kind of embarrassing. We had like ferrets, hermit crabs, chameleons, <laughs> hamsters, snakes, doves at one point like i don't know and and typically guinea pigs a bunny like typically my mom would be like we're gonna go you know get an animal or something and my dad wouldn't want it so then we would name the animal after my dad my dad's name is bob like we had a hamster named little bob um or my my dad liked wrestling and we had a snake named jake the snake there's a wrestler named jake yeah so like which you know to try to like lighten the uh shock of bringing home this animal so animals have always been an important part of my life not just domesticated animals but also wild animals and the more than human world and now i have a i have I, w- I want to say I, I feel aversion to saying I have like I am the guardian of or th- or they have me or we're friends, but I do technically own them. Two miniature dachshunds and a miniature donkey and a mid-sized mule. And then a few years ago, I also had a horse who's since passed. So and I'm sure there's other animals in there, too. That's uh, that's so cool to hear, and I'm glad we've uh, steered this conversation into pets because uh, I love talking about it. I got a dog, and it's it's an important one to talk about, and I think it's a good subject here to compare the two in terms of, I guess the the lack of support and from people, but talk about what you get in terms of support from your animals because when I'm thinking about it especially with people, there's expectations, you know, and then there's failed expectations. And and in terms of the support we can get, we try to get from people and also the understanding, you know, like you were saying, the people that were making comments to your sister, like, why don't you just try carrot juice or something like that? Like that, what the the stupid comments people make to to do that. And it's just like, Hey, all I need is your support, love and, and care. But yeah, you, you tell me in your own words, what your animals have, have done for you. Yeah, I mean, you've opened up a can of worms here because I could talk mm-hmm. about this all day. So I'll try to like limit it a little bit. But um, I can say, yeah, right. Like they're 
they're steady in a way. And if we're looking at this through like a secure attachment lens, which is a lens I often use, they're, they are consistent and congruent and caring a lot of the time. And so that's true. And I would also say, so if we're like, I'll talk about my mule for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> his his name is Mr. Hermes Bohannon or Bo for short. And he's so fascinating to me because so for the first seven years of his life, he was uh, really abused and neglected. This was before I knew him. And then through various things, we came to know each other and now we're each other's. And so he has a lot of trauma and grief in his life. Like you can tell that the way he moves in the world is different than, let's say, my my donkey is named Magic, Sir Magic. And um, he's had a quite charmed life. Like the woman who who you know, bred him, born him, whatever, and had him, loved him, would put him in her lap. And then I came to have him because he needed some rehab. And so now we're each other's. And he's like so friendly and loving and loves everything and has not a care in the world. I'm sure he sometimes is annoyed by things, but his disposition is quite different. And I I love them both so much. They provide different things, of course, because they're they're different people, donkey people, mule people. But it, you know, when I say I find Bo really fascinating, it really there is this kinship there where I feel we can understand each other. And he's helped me so much to learn how to approach people, again, including plant people, animal people, and approach him in the way that he needs, given what he's been through. And it's actually taught me a lot about how to approach my own grief and myself with as much attunement and care as possible. That's beautiful. And, you know, there's a lot of people listening out here who have pets in their lives who are understanding what you're saying and give them that love and support and have that beautiful relationship. It's uh, especially with animals that have gone through trauma. It's an interesting thing seeing them because when they meet someone or they, they remove themselves when they're out of that trauma and they get into a relationship with someone and build a bond again, there is the ability to do that, which is impressive because if, if they come from an environment where like, let's say a dog's just, you know, beaten down every day all the time, you think it would hate people. But like, you know, I've heard of situations where like a dog will, you know, it changes homes and it meets a loving human and, and it's able to build that bond again. And that alone is is, is beautiful and magical. But yeah, you know, they're, they're not judgmental. You know, you come home, doesn't matter what you look like. <laughs> super happy to see you. you know, and, and again, it's varying degrees of, of relationships. I'm just, I guess I'm specifically talking about my dog or who's very happy-go-lucky. But yeah, it, it's it's something that is, I think, very comforting to know that, you know, no matter what, no matter what world you live in outside, people judging and, and maybe the, 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 the negative interactions you might have, they can always come home and have something that loves you that much, which which I think is beautiful. And it's so great to hear and have. And, and obviously through grief and, and through the trials and tribulations of her life, can be very helpful and even even more so in today's day and age if you live alone it can be very helpful yeah i always say like 
yeah, no matter what, my donkey loves me. And I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever heard a donkey bray, yeah, but it's, it's yeah, it's something, right? Like it's it's pretty amazing. It's kind of it the way they speak is is like a a, yeah. a yell a yell wail, but like exuberant, and and you can tell it's usually happy. Yeah. And so it's it's like a really uh, soothing or healing thing to walk up and have him bray at me, right? And just know that he loves me and like I and and also to watch them both the mule and the donkey and my dogs and how they are with themselves and their own bodies so like I don't donkeys also tend to be a bit rotund or like round right and they like when the when magic runs his like belly kind of bobbles around and he's silly like he you know he has these big ears and he's great but he doesn't care you know, like what he looks like or how big his belly is or any of those things. Like he's just, he's <laughs> loving life, right? Like doing his thing. And I, I also find that really healing. Yeah. And play, you know, and, and that's something that like the older, my dog's almost six now. And, you know, that the element of play has decreased in terms of the amount he can play, but, you know, just limited by age and just getting older, getting tired. But he still likes to play and that's it's so beautiful to see the joy in in their eyes while they're doing that and uh you know just it's i think that relationship between because as a, as a pet you know owner or parent whatever you want to call it as you're taking care of that animal you do that on a daily basis so you're building this incredible relationship where you're you're the you're taking care of it it's taking care of you you're taking care of it it's taking care of you and it i i understand how people when they have loss pet loss in their life why it hurts so much because you you know every day you're 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 you're, you have that bond you have that interaction and again like i said some people don't even get that with humans um you know maybe maybe they they live alone maybe they don't whatever the situation might be but it's it's something beautiful that again can is there and and it takes place yeah i would say one of the only reasons why we think that you know, pet deaths, animal deaths aren't as big of a deal is because of human supremacy, right? Like, which I don't adhere to. I think that these more than human, other than human animals have personalities and wants and needs. And you're right, we spend so much time with them. And part of what you're talking about is like mutuality, right? And mutuality within play even. And I love the con I, I love the concept, the practice of play. Like that also is a can of worms that I don't need to go totally into, but I I I love it because there's so much imagination in it. And I feel like we're at a time as a human species where we have to imagine uh better ways, better systems. And even in grief work, like we need to imagine what's actually possible if we do this well and different ways to hold this. And with the pandemic, right, we've had to reimagine how to connect and how to um, have a funeral, how to grieve, all these different things. So um, that element of play feels so important to that. Yeah. And it's, I like it. It's like an automatic mood changer because you can't, it's very difficult to play genuinely upset. Like it, it just it just is, and you know I'm I'm human. I have bad moods and stuff like that, and you know maybe I'm tired. I'm just not feeling it. But you know I want to g- 
give him his opportunity to kind of have that play every day. So, you know, we'll, we'll have our moment of play and, and I can feel, and I consciously, well, actually not even consciously anymore, but like my mood will switch because I don't want to also, you know, be upset and put that on him. Be like, you know, he doesn't know, he doesn't know how terrible my day might've gone, but, uh, you know, I want to give him his opportunity and be like, all right, let's switch it. And the play helps that. It, it definitely kind of helps that switch happen even quicker. And I think that's great. That's such a great thing because you're really living in the moment. You're you're trying, you know, it's it's trying to obviously do something there. And and uh, the magic of that is, is very help, healthy and helpful. Yeah, as you were speaking, it made me think about how, partially because of what this podcast is about, like how dreams are probably a form of play, right? Like, you know, sometimes, maybe sometimes not, maybe sometimes it feels more serious, but it's also this piece of imagination, another way we can process things. Um, And I appreciate how I think a part of what you were just touching on is like, how can we both hold this, this grief or the realness or rawness of being human or being in this world. And then how can we play and imagine and process and have fun together? Right. And so obviously both are equally as important, but I just wonder about that piece around um, sometimes dreams being a, being a, a part of play. You would know more about that than me as my guest, but it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it is a really good question because you do see it in pet loss dreams. So there's a mm. lot of play going on. And so you can see how that's beneficial for the individual. Many said multiple levels, but also with children, if a child dies, a younger child anyways, they're playing tag. There's a lot of play going on in those dreams. When you get to be an adult or when you get to have like older people in your dreams, there's not much play going on, but there's still this feeling of peace and love. And it's just interesting how it changes and like how to get that feeling. So maybe not be not playing like stuck together, but they're more or less talking in a way that's very loving and supportive for the most part for those comforting dreams. But, but both are healing in the sense of the individual's life and, and really trying to help heal some of the wounds that have been opened because of that loss. So yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting topic in general. Yeah. I wonder just from the work you do, like if you've, we don't have to talk deeply about this, but like if you've found ever that grief dreams for people aren't helpful, don't help them process. Yeah. I'm curious if you'd want to talk about that for a couple minutes. I guess it, yeah, it definitely can. It really depends on your perspective. Usually when you wake up, right? So there's the nightmares that people would say, oh, that's not beneficial, but your mind's probably doing something, you know, like there's a reason for it. And Mm. we already know how important sleep is and we're not the only animals who dream. So there's a evolutionary benefit of this and what it's trying to do and, and work through. And so even the negative dreams can be beneficial on that front, on what the mind's trying to work through while you're basically sleeping. But when you wake up, I can see a lot of people taking even positive dreams to being negative based on your spiritual belief. Um, And negative dreams just being very distressing can also cause you to um, not have, be afraid to go to sleep or just not Mm -hmm. being in the right mood. So yeah, that wouldn't be helpful. So that's why like the podcast and everything that we're trying to do is to really normalize these experiences and give people a different perspective on some of the dreams they're having. Because if you can get a, if you can change that, just the perspective on the distress to something a little more positive, 
then all of a sudden things can change and you can actually get some wisdom from these dreams that you may not have thought was there was wisdom in it before. And that can help you as you move forward. So it's really based on, you know, your waking deep perspective, I think. Yeah, that's fascinating. I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. So before, I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but just quickly, I'm curious, did um, any of your other animals ever meet that horse before it died? Yeah. So uh, Bo was how Bo came into my life was I was working with my horse. She she became mine. I became hers. Her her name was Miss Hecate J, Miss J. And then he came to the barn that we were at and they just became best friends. And he just kind of became mine because of that. And so when she died, he was distraught for uh, part of why I got magic was because for probably like four weeks, he would just wail um, almost all day and, and was just distraught. Part of it is because he's a herd animal and not having at the time, it was just the two of them, but he missed her. And there was no doubt in my mind that he was grieving her as was I. Um, we did do a funeral for her. I was able to bury her on the land I was on. And I would say about 15 people came and he was there. He, he brought him up to this spot and that was helpful for me. I don't know if it was helpful for him, but I absolutely believe he went through a grief process with that. Yeah, that's what I was really curious about. It's not like every day we, we talk about that. And even for you to bring the horse to or the bow to the funeral i think is a beautiful sentiment on how you guys are trying to work through this together and i'm also interested too in what you what you did together to get through that other than the funeral yeah there were lots of walks so at the time i lived on 2000 acres of land i was like the keeper of it. i was the guardian of this land in a way um and so we had a lot of room uh, physically to just, we would go on these like three or four hour hikes. It was really the only thing that kept him, I, I don't know if calm's the right word, but um, okay. And it was obviously really helpful for me as well. So there was a lot of that. I would like sing to him. I don't know if he actually, I'm a really bad singer, so I don't know if he actually liked it or not, but you know, it's, just- it's like- it's like dreams, right? Like, <laughs> if it's, it may may have made it worse, but it may have made it better. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't know. But, you know, we just spent a lot of time together and we were in it together. And I knew she was his best friend. When they met each other, they just like fell in love. And, and you know, they spent every day, to, every second of every day together. So I knew he was going to be really distraught. And yeah, I think just showing up for each other. I think that's just great advice for anyone, right? Like, I think when we're trying to figure out what to do, how can we help someone? It's not really about really doing anything. It's just about being with each other and just allowing each other to know that it's, they're still loved and we're, we're together in this and however way we process it. And that relationship that you're talking about, going for walks and just being and you know, trying to sing and you know, like whatever, it's, it's helping both of you. And, you don't really know the extent because you said like they can't, they can't talk, but there must've been a feeling 
that it was beneficial. And that's a beautiful thing because that just shows the friendship that you you have together. Yeah, I can tell you that when I brought Magic, who again is a miniature donkey, so about half the size of Bo, maybe a fourth of the size of a regular horse. So Bo lived with this beautiful mare, Miss J, right, who he loved, and then didn't really have anybody. And this trailer pulls up you know, a few weeks later, and he's so excited, like, what is this? And then this, like, (laughs) dinky little donkey (laughs) comes out, and he's, you know, he's like, what? Um, Though, I will say now, they really love each other, and they're kind of, they're very much like brothers, Bo being the older brother, and him, and Magic being a younger brother, but it was definitely a transition for him. So it wasn't like right away they fell in love, like, like, uh, with, with, Miss Miss J, it took a little while for them to to build that friendship. Yeah, I think so. And I think part of it was because Bo was grieving, right? Like he was like, I don't know if I'm ready for this, just like a human, you know, when you are in a grief process and maybe you meet someone either as a friend or a new partner or something, and you're it's a hard thing to integrate as you're going through a lot. So I think that's part of it. Bo's also just very stubborn and uh very much thinks he's a stud so you know uh <laughs> that there's that too right but yeah it it definitely took some time i think what's interesting about having animals near you and spending a lot of time with them is because they can't talk you have to kind of pick up on other cues and so you end up learning a lot about an animal through body language and it's something, and the other thing that helps is, you know, most animals, and I'm not an expert on all animals, but like most animals, it seems like they're very, what's the word, routine, seems like they're very routine based, and that helps them, and, and, and in general, you know, I, I you know, my dog eats at a certain time, goes for a walk, he knows the drill, and there's certain things he expects from me and wants at a certain time, and that, that helps to kind of see the baseline of what an animal you know, the general mood is, what their happiness is, what what keeps them kind of like uh, at, a, at a nice balance. And then, you know, as, a, as you know, the owner, parent, whatever of, a, of an animal, when they go through something like with their pain or, or they're an injury or, you know, mourning or grief, now you can see kind of the difference. So for you, and I'm just explaining this to people who don't have animals or don't have that relationship it would be very clear for someone who's been around an animal so much to see when they are then different. Yeah. I think a piece of what you're talking about is attunement, right? Which is something I do a lot of work around with people. I mean, I think even, well, part of attunement is slowing down and just listening or watching this other person. But I also think that's part of what we need in grief work, right? Is just slowing down and paying attention. But I also think when you talk a little, when you were talking about routine, one of the words we could use for that is ritual, right? Like, although ritual is often something done with intention, but there's these rituals that we all have and certainly animals have. And then when something changes, we need to figure out some, sometimes some different rituals, right? Or some more potent or signifying rituals for what's happened, which is, you know, that was the funeral or the hikes we were going on was like, yes, something has changed. Our regular routines aren't working right now. 
So what rituals can we do together that can help us regulate, co-regulate each other? Yeah, absolutely. And and how can we ease the animal back towards that equilibrium? And that can relate to kind of when you were going through in high school and when you had your death, those teachers that were insensitive weren't aware of that, weren't able to ease you back into your balance. You know, they kind of, they missed the boat on that because they, you know, they either they didn't understand how to do that or they just, you know, it, they just couldn't have the tools or for whatever reason. Yeah, I feel really protective of grievers because we're so grief illiterate in our culture and so death avoidant. And so there's this part of me, like something that gets me really fiery is when other grievers are like, oh, yeah, this person said this or my best friend, like, you know, said I wasn't a good enough friend because two weeks after my dad died, such and such, you know, I wasn't there for them or anyways, I just feel really protective of people who are going through intense grief because uh, it's, as you know, it's really hard, but there's such a lack of understanding around it. And I'm, I want to shift the topic over to dreams. Have you ever had your own dreams of anyone or any of the pets that have died? Yeah. So I can say one of the last dreams I've ever had about Brett I was a teenager at this time. So it was, you know, some years had passed, but this was many years ago was this dream where he, he was like walking in this alley, which I don't know how to describe this. Like he was, he was a musician. Like he, I'm not joking, would wear leather pants skiing and like wore spurs with his boots to high school and stuff. Like he just had a kind of, punk rock style so him being in this alley feels kind of you know it was like there was probably spray paint on the brick walls or something like that so he was walking down this alley and I was younger than I was at that point and certainly younger than I am now um where so I was the age I was before he died so probably like nine or something and I ran up to him and jumped in his arms and I was little not just because I was young, I was also like a little kid, like one of the smallest people in my class always. So I like jumped in his arms and he was hugging me, which is something we would do. And I said to him, like, Brett, Brett, I need to warn you that when you're 22, you're going to overdose of a drug uh, of a heroin and like, don't do that. And he was just, and then we just kind of were hugging and then I'm pretty sure I woke up or I don't remember the rest of that dream. So that feels, that felt significant to me. It was when I woke up, I, I felt sad. Yeah. Because like, in the dream, you're trying to warn him of in a, a death in the, it's so, it's so interesting. You're trying to warn him, but you already knew the death almost like happened, right? Because that's why you're telling him about the future kind of thing. And so be, I think because you're younger, right? You're nine, you're saying. That does make sense. Because if you're older, it wouldn't make any sense. Well, even dreams are weird in itself. But because you're younger, you're almost moved back in time to try to avoid the death from occurring. Yeah, it's fascinating on a lot of levels. I can say that one of the difficult things among a lot of things around Brett's death, uh, and unfortunate things, is that like a week before he died, or a few days, was Halloween. And 
he lived, he was in college. So he lived about an hour away from where my family was at the time. And so we were going trick or treating and he was supposed to come with us. And he called and said, I'm not going to come. I'm sure he wanted to go to some college party. Like now I'm sure of that. And I got really mad at him and I told him I wished he was dead. And he ended up coming in. He ended up coming. So the good part of it is we all got to see him just a few days before. And sometimes because he was in college, we wouldn't see him for a couple months or something. But at that age, there was a part of me that knew I didn't cause his death. But like that had happened, right? Like I had said this thing that then happened. And I, I don't even know if I even told anybody about it for years. And so I think there's also, as I was saying about my sister's death too, there's this element of regret, or I think with my brother, not as much at all, but there was this element of like, "Mm, this shouldn't have happened or what could I have done, which at 10, there's really nothing I could have done about the whole situation. But, you know, I think that the dream, often with dreams, I sort of ask like, what is this dream asking of me? And I feel part of this dream was asking me to just sit with that, like, and, and, you know, yeah, there's so many aspects to it. So, no, I love how you went into more detail because you're right. That's in there. I can see it like so clearly when you're talking, right? <laughs> it's right there. And it's like, and I love how you approach dreams. Like, what is this asking of me? And you can sit with the whole fact of trying to save him, right? Like, could you have done anything more? than what you've done and you said it would have brought up all those other emotions what you've said and it's just really taking a critical look at those but at the same time you also got a, another chance to embrace hmm. right and have that i'm guessing the dream would have been as much as you were distressed waking up i'm guessing there was a lot of love and peace in that dream that would have also helped the grief process in some form on because that's what you know really happened with me and my father so like it's it's very interesting the different levels within a dream it's like it's more than just one thing there's so many things going on but i love that approach and i think a lot of people listeners can if they have any dream is to really look at that and and ask yourself you know what is this trying to what is this trying to tell me yeah well and i would say it's not even like what is it trying to tell me though that's a fine question to ask i don't sometimes i ask that it's like what do I need to, or what would I like to give back to this dream? Or what's my relationship with this dream? Which feels a little less extractive to me, if that makes sense. Like, it's sort of like, yeah, like this is um, something that's being dreamt through me that I'd like to work with as a companion, kind of. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's actually, it's really because that's how you sort of see animals and a lot of things in life too. It's this symbiotic sort of relationship where it's not just one way and you're making it sacred in its own own sense. Yeah, that's that yeah. like holy piece, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't mean it in a religious way though. If people are religious and it works for them, that's great. I just mean it as like, where's that place where we can come together and learn something from each other, right? Like mutuality or just moving a little bit deeper. And I appreciate what you said about, yeah, there was absolutely an aspect where it was so lovely to see my brother again, right? Um, In that dream. And 
uh, I feel that way in any dream I have about people who have passed. It's always, you know, like what a nice visitation. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's beautiful. And said it's also heartbreaking. And it's both, right? Like when you wake up, it's you're feeling it all. And there's and that's how do we process that? And that's why I think these conversations are important. And to people have if you're seeing someone or seeing a therapist of some sort, for them to provide that space to allow you to work through that and try to gain some understanding. And so have you had any other dreams of anyone? Or is that the only one you've had? No, I've had. So since Ivy has died, I've had a few different dreams with her in it, actually less than I would have thought. And I and I'm kind of sad about that. So I would be curious to hear how people feel about that. Like, I have quite a few grief clients who have a lot of dreams about the people who have passed. And I'm like, always kind of jealous. Like, it's funny. Anyways, but I have had some and and some are like, fairly mundane, or like, you know, like there was one where she was all these things were happening and she was like sitting on some bleachers as a part of the dream, but not a big part of the dream. But one of the ones that was one of the last ones that, that felt impactful to me was that I can't remember all the aspects of it, but essentially she hadn't, again, it was this thing where she hadn't died yet, but she was going to, and we both knew it. And we had one phone call left that we could, where we could talk to each other. And in the dream, we never actually made the phone call. It was like, we were both trying to get to somewhere where we could make that phone call. And I recognized how important it was. Like I knew this really important thing was going to happen. And what did I want to say? So, and then I don't, I either woke up or I don't remember what happened after that. Hmm. What would you have wanted to say? Oh man, I, I mean, for one, I talk to my sister a lot and I believe that after death care, or at least that's what I call it, is just as important as, you know, hospice work, funeral stuff, and what we do in relationship to people when they're alive. So I, you know, I write her letters. I have an altar that I I light candles for her. Sometimes I like, if I'm drinking coffee, I'll pour her a little bit of coffee in a different mug and try to share that with her. So I think something that's come up for me quite a bit um, is just like, I'm sorry for the ways that we missed each other. Like we didn't, we weren't able to hear each other. That feels important to me. And then like, yeah, I think this is probably similar to a lot of people. Like I miss you. I also have to say like, I have this thing where like when I tell people like, oh, I have regret or I I think I should have done this or I wasn't good enough sister. People are often like, oh, your sister wouldn't want you to feel that way. Like, what would your sister say? And I'm like, you didn't know my sister. Like, she may have very well been like, yeah, you kind of sucked at this thing. Like, I'm not saying that overall she wouldn't have said like, I love you. Like, I, I feel that there were so many ways we loved each other and knew each other. But I also feel like there were ways I messed up, right? And I feel like her personality, she would have called me out on it and been like, yeah, you really sucked at that. Or like, why weren't you there for me then? Or you didn't understand, right? Like she was, uh, yeah, she was, um, she was also just really witty and like funny, right? So she, but she could like call you out where you're like, I feel so seen in like such a horrible way. Like, 
so I guess like there's a part of me that would just want to kind of like joke with her and I actually would be super open to hearing any judgments she might have of me whatever that means I also I don't even know if I should share this but I will I have this theory that she speaks to me through animal poop I know that sounds weird but um (laughs) there was this fox that kept visiting us at the house I'm at and one day I'm assuming it was this fox it pooped in this cow skull in this really perfect way and I just knew it was her Like, I was like, that is something Ivy would do to communicate with me. And then there's been, like, some other silly things where, I don't know, it just seems like that's Ivy's sense of... I told my dad that, and he was like, she would show up as butterflies. And I was like, nope, not the Ivy I know. Like, she would think that was hilarious. So anyways, I guess I would communicate with her all those things in all those ways. That's really funny. Hey, like... The ways we continue our relationship is amazing. I've never heard the poop thing, but yeah, if someone can communicate <laughs> through butterflies, why not, right? Like it's just a personality, it's humor coming through and everyone has this different relationship, but it does not always have to be like the most beautiful creatures are the things that represent them. <laughs> like there's... Totally. Like she would just think like, I just feel like she would be like, yeah, butterflies are great, but like how regular or something, right? Like she'd be like, she was an artist and she she did... um. You know, she would like weave dried orange rinds around a skull, right? Like she was just into kind of weird, really cool stuff. So I just can't see her, you know, uh, communicating in regular ways. Yeah, no, I, I get that. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so any, have you ever had a dream of uh, Miss J since she died? You know, I think I have, but I can't remember anything specific. And I do know that so much of my relationship with Miss J was actually about grief. I believe that there's certain kinds of consciousness, meaning like equine consciousness or dog consciousness, that is has a certain kind of flavor or personality. And uh, as well as the individual personality of that being. But I believe that something with ekine consciousness has to do with grief. And that they're very willing, if, if we're willing to be in mutual relationship with them, they have a huge capacity for grief in my experience. And that's true of most animals. But I think there's something from what I've experienced with other people around horses, donkeys, mules, is that there is something really, I guess I, I guess I think of it like this. I think a lot of us want to connect with something larger than ourselves and horses are a physical manifestation of that. And when we feel like we're really connected and moving with an animal that's that large, 1,200 pounds or more, there is something kind of magical about it. Um, And even when they're witnessing our grief, I think it can feel like we've connected with something larger that's witnessing our grief. So I guess that's getting fairly spiritual. And I didn't share a dream there, but (laughs) these are experiences or thoughts I've had. Hey, that's fine. So if you could have a dream tonight of one of the individuals who have died today, who would it be and what would it look like? Mm, I... I wish I could have a dream where I was 
having a meal outside with both Brett and Ivy, you know, a lot of my stories are with both of them because we were all siblings. And like, I, I just feel like I should tell this story. When I was younger, this really happened. Brett was quite, a, you know, 10 years or whatever older than Ivy and I. And he told Ivy and I that flipping people off, you know, the middle finger was saying hello. And we had a station wagon where like the back row, the back seat faced backwards at that time. You know, there was some, you could like see out the back and you faced the person who was driving behind you. So my sister and I for weeks went around flipping people off. And then one of the neighbors finally said to my parents, like, did you know you're really cute little girls are flipping everybody off. And my parents were like, what? And, you know, confronted us. And we were like, yes, we are saying hello as, you know, as Brett taught us. And so that's like, I guess I'm sharing that to say that's the flavor that I'd like the dream to have is like, just kind of silly and hanging out as siblings. I suppose I'd, I'd love it if we were all adults now, not kids. And yeah, just like sharing a funny meal together. I like that. What a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like that's like, that is what I think of when I think of like Brett, you know, was just not harmful at all, but quite uh, silly. Like, like he could do stuff like that, you know? Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting because you see that with Brett and then Ivy. So I can only imagine your own relationship with people. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like, I like a certain sense of humor. I think, I think life's pretty funny. Hey, you got to play, right? Yeah. You got to play. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, this has been a wonderful conversation. So like, there's so much more we could talk about, but just, you know, just time. And so uh, where can people, I guess, find you? But also, I know you do some work with grieving individuals. Where can they find you also? Yeah, so I have a website. It's my name, hollytrular.com. And I also have an Instagram at hollytrular. I'm actually horrible at social media, but feel free to follow me if you want. And I will say I'm... I do see individuals and we'll do that with grief. And I've been moving more and more into groups, even online, small groups, witnessing groups. And I've found that to be really um, nourishing for people. So yeah, those are the best ways. Okay. Are you doing anything in law currently or no? I, I don't. I do a lot of work with liberation or transformative justice. I do a lot of work around community, actually, and that's an extension of it for me. So I certainly bring that law background in. And I'll say, uh, we don't need to get into this, but being in the uh, legal profession was a pretty griefful experience for me as well, just because the systems are so hard, so punitive. Yeah, I can't imagine. I don't know it, but the more I read about anything, the more I'm just shocked at what goes on. And you said the more, it's almost like the horror of life that is tend to be shed from you until there's like an investigation or there's like a huge, just like the Me Too movement, all that sort of stuff. You realize what actually goes on in these organizations that you have no idea until you're in it. Same thing with academia, right? Like I got, I got stories too. And it's just like, you know, wow. But yet on the outside, it looks so great. And, you know, I think a lot of things is like that. And same, I think it's a, a product of a lot of times how we present ourselves to people because we tend to put our best face forward and not talk about those moments and those struggles that we go through. And I think a lot of organizations are the same way. But yeah, so that's uh, a different conversation and we have maybe <laughs> another time. <laughs> so I just want to thank you so much for coming on and being honest and 
helping the world the best way you can to find its balance. Because you've had a wild journey of having to figure out, you know, what's just, figure out how to deal with a world like that. And how can we work together to build a stronger environment that's more supportive? And you're doing a great job. I'm just hearing your language and and how you speak. It's it's refreshing, I, I gotta say, and it's inspiring that those people that you are out there. So, you know, a lot of times you kind of feel like you're alone sometimes in the work you do, but then you start meeting these people and you're like, wow, there's just so many people doing it, but we're just never together. You know, like we're so far apart sometimes in where we live. But it's nice when we can get together on like a podcast or something and just realize, oh, wow, like just the world's the world's going to be OK, you know? Yeah, I I mean, likewise, I'm really excited about the work you're doing. I have a ton of gratitude for it. And I, I also do a lot of work around collapse, like systems collapse. And I'm sharing that to say, I think it's easy to get bogged down in the things that are going wrong. And that's true. Like there's some bad things happening. But my experience of most humans and more than humans is that we we want to do well by each other and we care. And sometimes we don't know how to do that and it's confusing. But I really think that most of us are trying and I see that in your work. So I'm just super appreciative of this conversation and all that you're doing. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right, to, to wrap up the show, um, we hope everyone enjoyed the episode. I know I did. Hopefully you did too. And so if you want to know more about Grief Dreams in general, you can check out our website at griefdreams.ca. If you want to support the podcast, you definitely can. There's links on the website. And we want to thank everyone who continues to support us. Also on the website, you can find our online courses. So there's two courses. One's on Grief Dreams. So if you want to learn more about that topic, we cover everything from sleep, dreams in general, grief and trauma, and of course, grief dreams. There's also another course called Crazy in Love, Using Romantic Relationships as a Vehicle for Growth. And so if you have Facebook, you can follow the podcast page on there. But And there's also another uh, group on there called Grief Dreams Facebook group, and you can share your dreams in that group. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. And as we always like to say, with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.